Turn with me to John 4, if you would. And if you're using a Bible underneath, the chairs will be on page 518 in those chair Bibles. Please feel free to take that with you if you don't have a Bible of your own. And each week together as a church, we're just walking step by step through the next passage in John 4. We're going to read a a long section this morning, so we've asked two people if they would come to read for us. So George and Brittany are going to come read for us. Come on up. Now, when Jesus heard, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called. He had a field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you the living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, neither, he, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Then, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or, why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come. See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here, the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. 
Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the savor of the world. You join me in thanking them for reading. So I hope you brought a sack lunch and dinner, because I've got to preach 42 verses today. Thank you for reading. Wonderful passage. About 500 years ago, a French pastor penned these words, we should consider it the great end of our existence to be found numbered among the worshipers of God. If you're a Christian here this morning, I hope you readily agree with those words that it takes no convincing that life is ultimately about worshiping God. I imagine we would quickly agree that that's true and that those words could be said of us, that all of life is about worshiping God. But do our prayers and our attitudes, our behaviors, and the norms that fill our lives reveal that we not only want to be among those worshiping God, but that we want others to join in and worship God too. In other words, do we not long only to worship God ourselves, but to invite as many people into that worship as we can? The temptation we face as Christians is to invite people into the kingdom of God, to invite people to believe in Christ who are like us. But this great passage today shows us that the gospel isn't simply for people like us. It's for all people. That there is no boundary markers that hold the gospel in. What keeps us often from sharing with other people are our prejudices. I wonder today where your prejudices lie. Who's on the list of people you would exclude from caring if they come to know Jesus? I've made a list. Here's a few in no particular order. Maybe some of these will ring true with your own heart. Meth addicts. Mormon soccer moms. Democrats or Republicans, or the two libertarians who might be around. Your ever angry and sometimes violent father. Christians, in your view, are these people outside the bounds of God's willingness to save? Are these people, people you care about, standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, worshiping God? There's others, of course, lesbians, socially awkward people who don't fit in, women who've had an abortion, an atheist professor at school who gave you a bad grade, felons, Muslims from one of Trump's banned countries, bisexuals, transsexuals, African-Americans, wealthy, arrogant white men of privilege, homeless, your ex-husband, people with physical needs. I'm not talking, of course, about an actual list that you have filled out and keep in your purse, but a list that no doubt is revealed by who we pray for, by who we hang around with, by who we avoid, by who we gravitate towards. John chapter 4 pokes in this incredibly sensitive issue 
about who do we think Jesus is for. Is Jesus just for you and people like you? Is Jesus just for us and people like us? Or is Jesus for everybody? Well, the big idea in this passage is quite simply that Jesus is the life-giving Savior for the whole world. That all who believe in Jesus are welcomed into eternal life. That all who would bend their knee and confess their sin and trust in Christ, as we sang together today, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I didn't die. I stake my whole eternity on Him. Anyone who reaches that point gets Jesus, regardless of what's in their background, regardless of if they're like us. That's what John chapter 4 is all about. So quite simply, we could just start from the beginning and ask, Christians, is your gospel wide enough for all? And non-Christians, is your understanding of the gospel big enough that it can include you? If you sat down later today and opened to John chapter 1 and you simply read straight through the first four chapters, it would only take you 15 or 20 minutes, even if you nodded off a few times, like some of you may do in the next few minutes. There would no doubt be something very stark stand out to you, and that's in John chapter 3, there's a man named Nicodemus who was of the elite of his day. He was an insider by every stretch of the imagination. He was the kind of guy you would respect. And yet he needed Jesus. Then you would turn the page and you'd hit John chapter 4, in which the point couldn't be any more clear. Here is someone from the very opposite end of the spectrum an outsider who had the exact same need. Jesus is the Savior for the whole world. Maybe we'd put it this way today. Whether you've been extremely promiscuous, like the woman at the well, or you've been rather ethical and moral to the point that you're pugnacious about it, the need is the same. That need is for Jesus. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's look together in at this story closely. This conversation between Jesus and this woman never should have happened. If Jesus had followed the norms of the day, if he had followed the religious and social customs, this conversation never would have taken place. There's three reasons why. Number one, this was a Samaritan. Number two, this was a woman. And number three, this was a loose woman. This was a woman who'd been around. Now, let me take just a few minutes and explain those three things with some measure of detail. The first one will take the most time, but I think it will bring the story to life. The story tells us very plainly that this woman was a Samaritan. What in the heck does that mean? Another one of those church words that seems odd if we have little background in church. Or maybe if you do, it's just one of those things you have skipped over and missed its significance. Here's the three-minute history lesson you didn't want, but will help immensely. The, the Samaritans at this point in the first century were an incredibly despised group of people. And, and here's why. Centuries earlier, when King Solomon died, the kings before him had been King Saul, then King David, then King Solomon, and then when King Solomon died, they couldn't agree who would take over the nation of Israel. So his two, two of his sons fought it out, and you ended up with two kingdoms. The kingdom was split in two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Are you still with me? All right, so Tempe in the north, Tucson in the south. <laughs> Judah and Israel never joined again. 
Now, over time, you can read about this in the books of First and Second Kings. Over time, a guy named King Omri formed the capital in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. He formed it in a town called Samaria. Eventually, a group of people came through this land and conquered it. The group was called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians had a brilliant strategy of war. They would besiege a city until they conquered it, and then they would, once they won, they would take the very best and brightest in the cities, and they would exile them back to Assyria. And in their place, they would put other people that they'd taken from other cities. Now, that might not sound like such a big deal, but over time, what would happen is the kind of leftovers, the, the, the people who weren't the wealthiest, prettiest, smartest, stayed. And they were joined by foreigners from another place who were of the same kind of class, if you will. And so over time, those cultures would become syncretized and you would lose the original culture. So the goal was to obliterate life as anyone had known it, and then to assimilate the very best to think of themselves as Assyrians. It's a brilliant strategy and incredibly wicked. The goal was to own the whole world. Now, the people that stayed, of course, over time what happened is there was a mix of the God of the Old Testament and the gods that they brought with them. And these people intermarried. They had children. So that eventually when Assyria fell and the Jews who'd been exiled came home, they were disgusted to find that the Samaria they knew no longer existed. The only people left were religious sellouts, ethnic half-breeds, people who turned from God and settled for a much more messy life. And we don't know much of that way of thinking today. But in the first century, this was a really big deal. A Jew would never talk with a Samaritan because a Samaritan had turned their back on God and had disobeyed him in the most stringent of ways. full of religious and ethnic sellouts. The Jews would have thought the God of Israel will never be inclusive of the Samaritans. Samaritans would have thought the God of the Jews isn't the same as our God. So there was racial and moral superiority on both sides. So that's the first reason Jesus never should have talked to this woman. She was unsavable. She was outside of God's plan. She was irredeemable. Now, the second reason is a little more obvious to us, perhaps, and that's that she was a woman. A religious Jewish man in the first century wouldn't talk to a woman. Now, that's a little hard to imagine, but Probably the women in the room today, at some point in your life, have felt a twinge of mistreatment or maybe something much more because you're a woman. Look at verse 7. It makes it obvious that this is an issue. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, so that's the first issue we talked about, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? That's even more obvious in verse 27. Then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to a... <gasps> Again, it seems crazy to us, particularly to the men in the room. But I imagine that many women, again, have felt a measure of this. 
In the first century, women had no legal rights. They couldn't own property. Their voices didn't count in court. They, to put it bluntly, they were thought of as good for having babies and going to fetch water. But that's about it. Now, understand that if you read your Bible closely, this is not the way God had designed society to work. This wasn't a reflection of how the people of God were supposed to be living. This is what happens when cultures wander further and further and further away from God. And just as an aside, historically speaking, everywhere Christianity has spread and been rightly understood, women have been dignified. They have been treated well. They have been given more rights. They've been seen as equals. I hope that we would understand at Churchill Mill that men and women are equals in Christ. And that certainly while the Scriptures outline there are distinct yet overlapping roles in different spheres of responsibility, we are co-equals as brothers and sisters in Christ. Ladies, if you have felt the mistreatment of men, then understand that the God-man, Jesus, will never mistreat you. His stopping to speak to this woman is such a glorious picture of the way in which he still stops to speak today. May we be a church where men and women alike are lifted up and encouraged. But this conversation shouldn't have happened because she was a Samaritan and because she was female, but it also should never happen because she was immoral. Now, this so much is not a big deal today because the vast majority of us have not lived a life honoring God sexually. But in this time, in this day, you, you didn't marry three, four, five, six times. You didn't cohabitate with somebody not your spouse. This wasn't what people did, and yet she did. She would have been thought of as used, as dirty, as someone who gave her body away cheaply. Now, no good upright citizen, particularly a religious leader, would be found with somebody like that. Why? Because of what that would do to your reputation. Imagine the... Maybe they're together. Maybe he's hoping it would be his turn. Maybe when nobody's looking, they're engaging in those kinds of activities. So Jesus, talking to a Samaritan, talking to a woman, talking in particular to a woman like that, this is a most unexpected turn of events. And yet here he is, turning his attention toward her, lovingly, kindly, graciously, looking her in the eyes and conversing with her about the love of God. This woman was the ultimate outsider. In every sense of the word, she was not one that would have been seen as possible to be included in the kingdom of God. She had a religiously messed up background. She was ethnically not of the right class. She was morally reprehensible, and therefore she was socially excluded. But Jesus didn't treat her that way. Why? Because the gospel knows no boundaries. Because Jesus 
is available to all who would believe. Jesus is available to all who would believe. You're not a hooping and hollering kind of people, but this would be a good moment to do so. Jesus is available for all who would believe. You see, Jesus offered her living water. What is that? Well, technically speaking, on a physical level, that's the way you would have talked about it, a spring or a stream, water that's flowing and pure, good to drink. But this conversation took place at a well, a physical well. Now, many of us came in today with a little bottle of water. That's not the the picture here. Imagine living in a place where you didn't turn on the faucet and the the gloriously tasting timpy tap just flows out. Now, this was a place where you got up early in the morning and day after day after day after day after day, you dropped a bucket down in a deep well and took turns dragging it up and carried this, sometimes miles, back home in order just to do it again the next day. Imagine how exhausting that would be. This conversation took place at a well, but it's not ultimately well water that Jesus is talking about. One of the things you'll want to do when you're reading your Bible, particularly I hope you're getting together with another person here and reading the next passage in John we'll be going through together, talking about ahead of time. You'll get a lot more out of this experience on Sunday morning, and then you can correct me when I get it wrong. But there's little details that are often one of the keys to understanding the stories. That's certainly true in this case. Did you notice when she went to the well? The story said she went at the sixth hour. Chronologically, for a Jew in the first century, that meant she went at noon. Now, any dummy knows this isn't the time to go to the well. This is the hottest part of the day. You don't go to carry water when you're going to have to drink more of it because it's so hot. You go in the early part of the day when it's still cool. But John, as he records the details, tells us she went at the sixth hour. She went at noon. Why? Because she was a social outcast, even among her own people. She got tired of going when she'd hear the the jeers and feel the judgment from the other women as they went to fetch water. The story so powerfully says, if you have ever felt like a complete outcast, There is someone. There is a message that can change everything. Jesus offered this dear woman living water, a spring of water. Look at verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, imagine he's pointing down into the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is essentially saying, if you drink from God's well of salvation, your dead soul will become a never-ending spring of eternal life. Now, I'm all for keeping Christianity weird, but this doesn't mean that Christians actually have a fountain inside of you of actual water. It's a picture It's an analogy. Particularly, it's a picture of the Spirit, as we'll learn in a few weeks in John 7, that when someone believes in Jesus, then inside of you, you're given eternal life. That life comes and is sustained by the Godhead, by God the Father who gives this gift, by Jesus who died for you, And by the Spirit, 
who is the ongoing, sustaining, life-giving power of God, not as an external force to constrain your behavior, but as an internal source of well water, of living water, of life springing up, giving you joy and peace, confidence and hope, forgiveness. Doesn't that sound good? Christianity at its most fundamental principle is the life of God given to human beings. The life of God put within us that from that source we would learn to live everyday life. Friend, if you're not a Christian, understand that living water is available to you. That the life of God is offered to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you would but turn from a life of sin and turn to a life of obedience. If you would give up your lost desire for control and surrender to the Jesus who offers himself to you. But your path to that must be the same as the Samaritan woman's. There are many today who would want to offer a gospel of life, but it's not the gospel of the Bible. You see, the gospel of the Bible comes with a bit of a sting. It comes with the recognition that we are dead apart from God, that we are under His discipline, that we are without Him, that we deserve His wrath forever. We see that in this story in which Jesus confronts this woman. Now, it's not so obvious on the surface, but look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Why does he say that? Well, it's because this was her point of sin. This was her place of greatest need. The gospel is the good news that Jesus saves, but You don't get Jesus if you cling to your sin. You've got to give up a life without God in order to enjoy a life with God. You see, this was an immoral woman. The details aren't spelled out for us. Spilled out, did you get it? Water at... Come on! The... Details aren't there, but all the markers are. You see, this woman had been married multiple times. And not only had she been married multiple times, she was with someone now, engaging in sexual behavior reserved for the purity, the dignity of the marriage bed. This woman had given herself to men. She was looking to other fallen human beings to give her what only God could give. And as you and I have experienced, perhaps not in that way, but in other ways, that never works. You can't meet a spiritual need with the world's resources. Simply doesn't happen. Doesn't work. The movie buffs in the room, particularly those who like older films, will remember a guy named George Sanders. George was one of the most famous actors in the first half of the 20th century. He was an Oscar winner, appeared in more than 90 films. He was a graduate of Cambridge, enormously successful. He had climbed to the very height of success. But he was just like the Samaritan woman. He had been married four times. You can answer that phone. You know the last hour, the first gathering, no phones rang. But now they ring all the time. Thank you. He was married four times, including to the great Zaza Gabor. But no woman, no degree, 
no amount of money, no fame, could fix his need. So at the age of 65, in a posh hotel room, he left a note before he took the pills that killed him. The note said this, I'm committing suicide because I'm bored. I feel I've lived long enough. I leave you all to your sweet little cesspool, and I wish you luck. What sad words. George had the unfortunate experience that many of us, in fact, all of us, most likely will never have. He got everything he hoped for. He could have any woman. He had all the fame he could have. There was no one more successful. The challenge that we face is there's always the illusion that I can get a little bit higher. I can get someone a little more attractive. I can make a little more money. I can climb a little higher. And so there's this mirage that we can actually get what it is that we're longing for. But a few people come to realize that doesn't work because they attain everything the world has to offer. But friend, whether you have a lot or nothing, you can't meet a spiritual need with the resources of the world. Only living water will do. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Woman, I mean, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. This is sort of a tip of the hat. Jesus, that was a pretty cool trick you did there. I, I think you've got some higher spiritual skills than me. But now in verse 20, she does what we're tempted to do. She deflects to another issue. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. When Jesus confronts us with our sinfulness, the temptation we will face is to do this. Jesus, you're a good guy. You're a smart teacher. But I'm going to turn from my guilt to something else. I'm going to turn from shame. I'm going to turn from what you've, ugh, what you've poked in and deflect to something else. Now, in this woman's case, it was an academic theological debate about where worship is supposed to happen. The Samaritans had built their own temple and crafted their own Bible. Well, it's not that this issue didn't matter, but Jesus says to her in such a brilliant way, it's not where you worship, it's who. He took her deflection and said, I'm going to yet again offer you living water, water that's available wherever you are, whatever you've done whoever you are, whatever you have. It's living water. It's water that wells up to eternal life. God changed your life. Although the text doesn't explicitly tell us, there's no question that she believed, that she drank of this water, if you will, that her dry, dead soul was filled with the life and peace and forgiveness of God. How do we not know that I'm simply reading something onto the passage? How do we know I'm not turning this into a Hollywood ending? How do we know I'm not trying to manipulate you into belief? Well, let me give you two reasons that make this so clear. First is this woman's sense of liberation. She, by any measure, is there as a woman of guilt and shame. She's at the well alone. She's shocked that Jesus would talk to her. She deflects when he picks the scab of her moral indiscretion. 
And then the, the little detail. What does she do with the water? She's there at the well to fetch water and to carry this heavy jug back to the home. But she drinks of living water. So what does she do with the jug? Nothing. She leaves it. The picture couldn't be any more beautiful. She no longer needs the best the world can give her because she has the best heaven can offer her. She has the life of God in her dead soul springing up to life. That's what verse 28 says. No longer did the woman need the arms of romance to make her feel good about herself. She finally came to see no man, no sexual experience, no another chance with another guy can actually solve the problem. A man can't fix her. But the God-man, he can rescue her. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. Now, the second clue that she had been given life is simply her passion. Not her passion for men. Her passion to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Remember who she was. This was the woman who hung her head in shame, who went when no one else would be there, who no doubt didn't talk to anybody because even the women of the town knew, I can't talk to her because she might become my friend and then manipulate her way into the sack with my husband. This woman is now openly confessing Christ to the town where she held her head in shame. That is not a human change. That is a supernatural change. That is something only God does. God poured life into her. What a glorious picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, this is our mission that we would worship God in spirit and truth. And then that worship would pour out, out of this room into this desert of spiritual need that we live in. Now, what was the response? This is such a helpful ending to the story. The story cl clearly tells us that many believed. So Christians, do you see that God's rescuing of you, God's giving you of life, living water, isn't simply for you? That God's plan was never simply to allow you to enjoy the benefits and blessings of eternal life, only for you to keep them to yourself. No, that, that spring of living water is meant, it's designed to be poured out in buckets of love and kindness towards everyone we interact with. Look at verse 41. He tells us that many more believed because of his word. That's Jesus. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard from ourselves that this is indeed the Savior of the world. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, there are some people that are wired to think, I don't need God because I'm pretty good on my own. The story you need to hear is the one from two weeks ago, Nicodemus. But there are others. There are others who know, I am broken. I have failed at life. I am morally reprehensible. The story you need to hear is this one. 
And God loved you enough in His kindness to bring you here today, not to hear from me, but to hear from Him. Because this Jesus who talked with the woman at the well still talks today through His Word. And this living water is held out to you in the gospel. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Christ can save. Jesus is the life-giving Savior for the whole world. Now, to the Christian, what do you do with a passage like this? I made a joke of it earlier, but I wish we could spend the day together. There's so much in this beautiful text. I would encourage you to spend more time in it this week, prayerfully considering everything that God might say to you through it. But in closing, let me simply say that your ongoing experience of living water will be directly proportional to your willingness to delight in and obey God. That the life of God has been poured into you, and, and He is endless. But you can, if you will, dam up that free flow of living water by getting caught up in the distractions and the sin that so easily ensnares. So if you're a Christian who's bound up again in, in sin, the life of God is within you. You don't need to get saved again. But would you repent of sin? Would you turn to Him? Would you ask that those living waters would flow freely again? And perhaps most directly for us, brothers and sisters, would you look in your heart for envy and for prejudice? Would you look for people that you would not share the gospel with, that you would not open your home to, you would not freely give your resources to. Because that's the most direct application of this passage. The Samaritan was included in the kingdom. There is no one you or I will ever meet who cannot be included in the kingdom if they will believe. Jesus is indeed the Savior the whole world. Let's pray. Father, Tempe needs a church where people from any and every background can hear the gospel and can see that Jesus is alive and well through the way we treat each other. And so we pray as brothers and sisters, particularly those here today who have covenanted together in membership, that you would help us to turn from any prejudices we have and to turn to a gospel that's big enough for all. We pray that we would be a church where we are together drinking daily from the well that is Christ. Convict us where there is need and then help us to walk in such a way that we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And Father, I pray for those in the room who have yet to come to Christ that you would persuade them through your preached word that they can, in fact, be given Christ. I pray as we end in just a moment that they would come to me or to another leader or simply to who they came with and ask any questions they need to have answered or simply to pray for salvation. God, we thank you that the gospel is big enough for all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amazing passage, isn't it? Thank you for the privilege of speaking with you about it today. As the ushers come now for us to continue worshiping in worship,
by giving. Guests, we would ask that you don't participate in the offering. That's the joy and privilege of the members. But we would love to get that guest information card from you. And members, remember that as we give generously, we give to the God who gave everything. And we give in order that this gospel could be freely shared. We give of the living water through our resources that God has given to us. Now, a couple quick announcements as we wrap up together this morning. There is the turn of the clock today. We are at October 1st, so the date has changed. Beginning a new month, there's a lot coming up in the month of October that would give us opportunity as a church to grow spiritually and to share the gospel with people who have yet to hear. One of those opportunities that you might not be quick to think of is Halloween. I think Halloween is weird, but Halloween is also... I believe the easiest opportunity of the entire year to meet non-Christians. Why? Because this is the only time in the year that people will come knocking on your door who aren't there to sell you something. So would you start thinking now, church, about how you can use that night in order to build friendships, in order to gain opportunities to share the gospel? Start thinking about Maybe other friends you could gather together to have a party in your home or maybe even get together with your gospel community. Buy lots and lots and lots of candy. Give generous amounts and share the gospel. Build friendships. Meet neighbors that you've lived next to for years but you've never actually met. This is the easiest time to meet people. I encourage you as you work toward that end of the month that you would be thinking about how to strategically share the gospel with people. Second, our final announcement for today, uh, college students, thanks for worshiping with us today. We consider it one of the great privileges we have as a church to help you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to experience it in an imperfect, but a church that's seeking to live the life of Christ out. We would love for you to stick around and enjoy lunch together over with us in the Christian Challenge Building as across the lawn. You can get free food and meet a lot of great people. Now, everybody, would you stand with me and be sent out this morning with Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now, to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be all glory in Christ Jesus, and in the church throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.